This is our ongoing discussion of Simon Don's individuation in light of notions of form and information. We're on part three on psychic individuation, uh, and we're just going to be beginning chapter two, individuation and affectivity. To recap last time, we looked at some, some ideas about information. That was the, the sort of key topic of, of last week's reading, I think. Uh, Simon Don has his own specific meaning of the term information that we've seen a couple of times. He contrasts this with the standard notion of information from communication theory, uh, which is a, a quantitative notion of information, uh, according to which uh, a message carries more information, the less predictable it is. Simondon sort of wants to uh, contrast this notion of information with the notion of form in Gestalt psychology, which is conversely is a notion according to which something has a, a good form, the more predictable it is, or the more it sort of accords with the uh, principles of good form. Uh, so something like a, a square or a triangle or a circle, these simple geometrical figures are um, are the the basic forms of uh, of good forms in Gestalt psychology. Simon Don wants to develop this notion of information that is sort of um, that would mediate between this quantity of information concept from communication theory and the concept of a good form from Gestalt psychology. So it would be something that is it's not. Um, it's not minimally predictable like a message in communication theory, and it's not maximally predictable like a good form. It, it has this sort of intermediate value. And he uses different terms for this. He sometimes calls it a, a tension of information, uh, but it has to do with uh, the, the generation of forms or the genesis of forms rather than just a reception of forms. Uh, and so Simondo argues that we will tend to find this genesis of forms or um, the creation of new forms only uh, in situations with uh, an affective charge or an emotional charge. So this is sort of why in a laboratory setting um, where you just have a psych student, you know, pressing a button every time there's a triangle or, or some other simple task like that, in that setting, you don't have a, a real genesis of forms. So he, he looks at instead situations like a child seeing a, a certain kind of animal for the first time. So there's a some sort of emotional reaction of the child and uh, the child is able to grasp the form of the animal and, and understand which part is the head and which part is the tail and, and so on without without necessarily knowing anything about this type of animal. And then we saw so again, there, there's more discussion of the storing of information, uh, which is uh, similarly quantitative. Storing light information in a photograph, for example, requires um, a certain um, density of, of elements that are capable of being affected by light. So uh, the more grains there are in a photographic film, the more um, independent decisions there are for, uh, for storing information. But then this is not exactly, so this notion of storing information is not the same as uh, the notion of an intensity of information uh, or um, what he also calls tension of information in, in other places. So this notion of intensity of information has to do with the vital individuation of the subject. So it's, it's only insofar as the subject is a living being that they are capable of of receiving information in the specific sense that Simon Dong uh, gives to that term. And then we have the last little bit of the 
the paragraph of the uh, of the section he he talks about this intensity um so he talks about this intensity and um the way that it works uh, sort of independently from perceptual clarity or fineness of, of of green or anything like that so um something like a smell um a smell can can be very evocative of emotional responses even if it's not it doesn't have any sort of precise figure in the way that visual perception does so we can think of uh, an example like smelling someone's perfume or smelling a type of food these will tend to evoke some sort of emotional response even though the actual perception itself is is pretty vague and um, hard to pin down uh, and then there's this comparison in the last little bit, the last paragraph, this comparison of the synthesis of concepts with crystallization, which is um, a bit obscure. It's uh, not not one of the clearer passages of, of this uh, section that we've been reading. But the idea is that the formation of a concept is not just something like abstraction from percept, uh, perceived objects. So the, the sort of traditional notion of concept formation is just that you you see um, you see a dog on Monday, you see a dog on, on Tuesday, you see another dog on, on Wednesday, etc. Uh, and then after seeing different dogs, you um, abstract from the individual dogs and you, you preserve what's common to them. And that's, that creates your concept of a dog. So Simon Do argues that concept formation is actually um, a form of individuation. So it's not just, you're not just abstracting away from what's common to the, the different perceived objects, but instead you're undergoing a process of individuation. This is something that we can see at work in the case of um, metaphysical systems or metaphysical doctrines, where the whole introducing a new concept um, reorganizes the whole system of concepts so that you have to think uh, in a completely different way than you did before this new metaphysical system has been uh, assimilated. And, and so, Concept formation is is like uh, perception in the sense that it involves this emotional or um, affective aspect uh, or resonance. So yeah, let's let's start in on uh, on this section. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's get started. I'll read the first page or so, and then we'll go around from there. Okay. So chapter two: individuation and affectivity, subsection one: consciousness and individuation, the quantum nature of consciousness. Such a study requires us to pose the problem of the rapport between consciousness and the individual. This problem seems to have been obscured above all by the fact that Gestalt theory has privileged the perceptive relation over the active relation and the affective relation. If equilibrium is restored by reintroducing the consideration of all the aspects of relation, it becomes clear that the subject effectuates the separation of units in the world object of perception, which is a support for action or response to sensible qualities insofar as the subject realizes within itself a progressive individualization through successive leaps. This role of consciousness in individuation has been poorly defined because the psyche has been considered as an undefined plurality in the atomistic doctrine, or as a pure indissoluble and continuous unity in the doctrines opposed to atomistic psychology, whether this be Bergsonism or Gestalt theory in its beginnings. In fact, it is, if it is supposed that the individuality of states of consciousness of acts of consciousness and of quality of consciousness is that of a quantum type, it is possible to discover a mediation between absolute unity and infinite plurality. A regime of intermediary causality thereby appears between the obscured determinism that results in the psyche 
are stripped of interiority and consistency, and the tensed and limpid finality that allows for neither exteriority nor accident. The psyche is neither pure interiority nor pure exteriority, but an ongoing differentiation and integration according to a regime of associated causality and finality that we shall call transduction, a regime that seems to us to be a process that is more fundamental than causality and finality, which express the borderline cases of a fundamental process. The individual individuates insofar as it perceives beings, constitutes an individuation through action or through a productive construction and belongs to the system that includes its individual reality and the objects that it perceives or constitutes. Consciousness would thus become a mixed regime of causality and efficiency insofar as it links the individual to itself and to the world. Affectivity and emotivity would thus be the transductive form of the psyche par excellence, the intermediary between the clear consciousness and subconsciousness, a continual link of the individual to itself and to the world, or rather the link between the relation of the individual to itself and the link of the individual to the world. At the level of affectivity and emotivity, the relation of causality and the relation of finality are not opposed. Every affectival emotive moment is simultaneously judgment and preformed action. It is really bipolar in its unity. Its reality is that of a relation that has a value of auto-position with respect to its terms. Affectival emotive polarization feeds on itself insofar as it includes or is a result of an intentionality. It is at once auto-position and hetero-position. Thus, the individual would be neither a pure relation of exteriority nor an absolute substantiality. It could not be identified with the residue of the analysis that fails when confronted with the indivisible or with the first principle that contains everything in its unity from whence everything flows. Okay, so this is a, a pretty dense passage. Um, yeah, heavy lifting for sure. Um, so um, some, some of this is going to um, be explained a bit more as we go along, um, uh, some of it is not. So we have to sort of decipher what's going on uh, just from this passage. Um, but so to start with, um, he's again uh, trying to find a, an intermediate position or, or um, an alternate position between um, something like um, psychological atomism. So um, an empiricist doctrine according to which uh, psych psychological phenomena would be composed of uh, psychological atoms that are joined together um, through some sort of process of association. Uh, and then on the other hand, um, Gestalt psychology, or uh, he, he counts Bepsan um, on this side as well, um, as, as some sort of theory that uh, a holistic theory or a theory of psychological holism, according to which um, the the mind or, or the psyche is uh, um, a sort of indivisible whole uh, and uh, individual psychological phenomena would be sort of abstractions out of that whole. Uh, so he wants to find something as intermediate between those two um, uh, and this is a sort of standard move for for Bersin, for uh, sorry for Simondon um, to um, uh, take a, an opposition between positions uh, and try to find um, the middle ground, not in the sense of like um, trying to reconcile the two positions, but taking those two positions as as like extreme points of a continuum and 
trying to isolate that middle uh, portion of the continuum and uh, um, find a, a philosophical position that uh, is adequate for that middle portion rather than just for the two extremes. Um, and so there's this notion here of uh, a quantum property of, of consciousness or quantum nature of consciousness. And so here he's not specifically talking about uh, quantum physics, uh, but, but he means um, uh, the quantum nature of consciousness here means the threshold effect um, or, or the fact that consciousness is um, structured by threshold effects. Um, so he's going to um, clarify this a bit later, but uh, he talks about um, processes of individuation that are uh, sort of discrete or, or um, self-contained processes. So there's like one, one process of individuation that takes place uh, and then there's another one that takes place. So it's, it's sort of uh, an abrupt um, uh, process uh, of switch from one, or sorry, there's, there's sort of an abrupt switch from one process of individuation to another one. Um, so it's not, it's, not, um, it's not just one continuous stream of consciousness. There's um, distinct, uh, there's distinct in processes of individuation going on in consciousness. Um, and then he, he expresses this uh, in terms of transduction. So this is, again, that middle ground or intermediate form um, uh, within, within the psyche. Um, so transduction in general has to do with um, some sort of process of structuring of something that is previously unstructured through a, a gradual transmission of structure. Uh, and so we can think here of the crystal example that he uh, introduces in, in uh, the physical individuation part. Um, so in the same way that the solution uh, crystallizes gradually across um, uh, so that each layer crystallizes the layer that follows it uh, in the same way there's this sort of um, gradual transition between um, what he calls here causality and and um, um, efficiency so uh, uh, or sorry uh, causality and, and finality um, so um, in in the case of so causality would correspond to psychological atomism so there would be causal relationships between ideas um that that would make up the mind and then um finality corresponds to uh psychological holism so that um everything within the mind would be in some sense directed by the the final cause which is the the mind as a whole um and so this transduction would be some some sort of intermediate between these two or or some mediation between the two um, and then he he goes on uh, there's a sort of um abrupt transition but he 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 points to the role of affectivity and emotivity as being the um, um, uh, as being the the transductive form of the psyche um, so that uh, if we regard um, uh, perception and action as sort of two ends of the spectrum, uh, then uh, affectivity is, is what is um, the intermediate point in the spectrum. It, it's that uh, transductive 
um, points in the spectrum or, or portion of the spectrum. Um, and uh, right, so there's um, uh, right, and a question in the chat about transduction. Uh, so is it something like a precipitous accruing aggregation? Um, I think precipitous might not be the right word, but um, accruing or, or aggregation is a is a good um, a good translation. So yeah, it's a um, there's always um, transduction is always a, a gradual process of structuring something that was previously unstructured. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I think I think it's um, um, uh, sorry. What was I going to say? Um, I think Mondon understands uh, transduction primarily in terms of the example of crystallization rather than through a, um, a sort of formal definition. So I think that crystallization example is something we can always keep in mind. So when he when he describe something as transductive, he, he's sort of comparing it to the example of crystallizing. Um, yeah, so I think that is uh, most of the, the main concepts that are introduced in this, um, in this passage. But uh, yeah, so let's go on to the next subsection, if someone else would like to read the next. Uh, yeah, the whole subsection is about a page and a half. So maybe if someone could read subsection two. I can read if you want. Sure, go ahead. Uh, two, signification of effective subconsciousness. The intimacy of the individual should not be sought at the level of pure consciousness or that of organic unconsciousness. It should be sought at the level of effectivo emotive subconsciousness. In this sense, the thesis that we are presenting here would diverge from the doctrine that is broadly called psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis has noted that there is indeed an unconscious in the individual, but it considered this unconscious as a complete psyche that is somewhat copied from a consciousness that can be grasped. On the contrary, we shall suppose that there is a fundamental layer of the unconscious that is the subject's capacity for action. The sequences of action can hardly be grasped by clear consciousness. The subject errs to the greatest extent with respect to what it wants or wills and does not want or will. The succession of acts of will ensues in such a way that the markers of the process appearing to consciousness is quite rare and in no way suffices to constitute a valid foundation. By contrast, representation is much clearer. The unconscious representative elements are not rare, but summary, barely sketched out, and generally incapable of veritable invention and progress. They, remi they remain fairly crude stereotypes that lack representative reality. At the limit between consciousness and the unconscious, on the contrary, there is the layer of subconsciousness, which is essentially affectivity and emotivity. This relational layer constitutes the center of individuality. The modifications of this layer are the modifications of the individual. Affectivity and emotivity are capable of quantum reorganizations. They proceed through abrupt leaps according to degrees and obey a law of thresholds. They are the relation between the continuous and the pure discontinuous between consciousness and action. Without affectivity and emotivity, consciousness seems like an epiphenomenon, and action seems like a discontinuous series of consequences without premises. An analysis of what can be called psych psychical individuality should therefore be centered on affect affectivity and emotivity. 
Here as well, psychoanalysis acted appropriately, although without always using a theory that is adequate to its operative appropriateness. Because when the psychoanalyst addresses the individual, he is acting within the affectivo-emotive regime. What Jung discovers in his analysis of the unconscious or the subconscious are the affectivo-emotive themes at the basis of myths. If one can speak in a certain sense of the individuality of a group or of a people, it is not by virtue of a community of action, which is too discontinuous and cannot be a solid basis, nor by virtue of an identity of conscious representations, which are too broad and too continuous to allow for the segregation of groups. Collective groupings are constituted at the level of affectivo-emotive themes, which are a mixture of representation and action. Inter-individual participation is possible when affectivo-emotive expressions are the same. Thus, the vehicles of this affective community are not merely symbolic elements, but also effective elements of the life of groups, the regime of sanctions and rewards, symbols, the arts, and collectively esteemed and unappreciated objects. Finally, it can be noted that this doctrine, which places the quantum regime of affectivity and emotivity at the center of the individual, is in agreement with the teaching of research on the structure and genesis of species and organisms. No living being seems to be deprived of effective emotivity, which has a quantum nature for highly complex beings such as humans and also for beings that are only partially organized. The oldest layers of the nervous system, particularly the midbrain, are the centers of this regulation. Pathology also shows that the dissolution of individuality can occur quite profoundly when the organic foundations of this regulation are affected, particularly in the case of tumors of the midbrain, wherein it seems that the very foundations of the personality are destabilized. Whereas a weakening of the functions of representative consciousness or of the capacities of action alters the personality without destroying it, and often in a reversible manner, alterations through affectivity and emotivity are rarely reversible. Thanks. Um, yeah, so we have another um, pretty dense passage here, um, but um, he does explain a couple of notions that he introduced in the last passage. So the, the notion of quantum, quantum nature of consciousness, um, you can see at the bottom of um, 274, he says, um, uh, when he's defining um, the quantum nature of affectivity and emotivity, he says they proceed through abrupt leaps according to degrees and obey laws of thresholds. Um, and, and so that's the, the sort of quasi definition of um, uh, the quantum nature of consciousness. So um, this, this idea of um, abrupt leaps is, is what he has in mind um, rather than some sort of continuity of consciousness. Uh, but here, so we, we have this contrast with uh, psychoanalysis, um, um, and it, it seems like what he's thinking of when he talks about psychoanalysis here is actually more Jung than Freud, um, because, and he mentions Jung um, in, in uh, the next paragraph. Um, but it seems to be that what he's talking about is something like the collective unconscious that, that Jung talks about, um, um, as opposed to uh, specifically the, um, the unconscious as, as Freud conceives it. And uh, so he, he's going to make a distinction here between uh, not just 
uh, conscious and unconscious, but a three-way distinction between uh, conscious, subconscious, and unconscious. And it's that subconscious layer or, or level that he wants to um, go into in more detail or, or focus on. Um, and uh, so this subconscious level is the, the one that he um, describes as affective or emotive. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's the layer of our um, reactions towards phenomena in the sense of um, either seeing them as, as good or bad or, or um, valuable or, or uh, unvaluable or something like that. Uh, and, and so he, he points out that this, um, this layer is, um, sort of forms the capacity for action. So whenever we act, we're always, um, sort of implicitly, uh, working with some sort of valuation. So if we, you know, pick up one, uh, brand of ice cream at the store, uh, as opposed to another one, we're sort of implicitly, um, selecting that brand as, as being better than the other one. Um, so any, any action by, by um, making some sort of decision or, or choosing one alternative over another, you're, um, you're sort of implicitly acting in, in light of a evaluation of those different options. And um, Simon Dahl points out that this, this valuation is something that we in general are not uh, aware of. So um, you might, um, you know, if someone asks you what's your favorite, um, I don't know, we can stick with the ice cream example, what's your favorite kind of ice cream, you might say one thing, but then when you go to the store, you actually pick up something different. Um, so you, uh, if you, um, if you stick with what the subject actually says about themselves, you you will have like a an incomplete and a distorted picture of what what they actually value um and and you can see this in in more um uh i guess significant decision making so someone might say that they care a lot about x but then their actions show that they are really not um acting as if they care about x uh so um that that layer of the affective um uh is is something that we're not um, directly aware of, or uh, insofar as we're aware of it, we uh, don't we don't have um, some sort of uh, infallible access to this layer of the affective. The uh, the all the midbrain stuff brought back memories of Jane's and bicameral mind theory. Yeah, that's something that I. I'm only sort of vaguely aware of, but um, yeah, that, that weird notion of like um, um, the idea that human, the human brain was sort of um, constituted of, of these two, um, uh, or I guess it's the two hemispheres that were um, sort of disjoined from each other until sometime in like 5000 BC or something like that is when I think he supposed he says that the, the sort of, um, joining together happened uh is that right oh i don't remember i i i i i think that there's a lot there's a lot that kind of went wrong with the, with the with the theory kind of was taken 
I mean, I, I guess I've, I've, I've read a lot of criticism of it that was like, I mean, I think it almost is kind of like arbitrary what historical period he kind of picked out, but I think it was supposed to be whatever, whatever like period was related to the development of the certain kind of technical capacities that, that humans had. So, um, that, yeah, and but I think he. What's more interesting about Jane, though, and it, it relates more to the psychoanalytic theme here, that the kind of Jungian section, because it, it's it's more about kind of the bicamerality as a theory of like the development of the the kind of bipolar or two two poled aspects of like mythological construction. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there beyond kind of the stuff which which perhaps might be historically spurious or neurologically spurious, I guess, at this point. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. I I wasn't aware of that other aspect of his work. I I only sort of knew vaguely about his, um, yeah, sort of weird historical uh, idea about, like, um, this neurological transformation of human beings in historical time. and then there's a question in the chat here from uh, Pretzel. Um, uh, so could the subconscious layer be better better handled currently uh, within the register of neuroscience in terms of processes rather than this quantum notion? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, definitely there, there would be a lot more information available about um, how, uh, you know, how the brain is involved in, in something like affect, uh, affective um, processes. Um, but I think this quantum character is something that, that he would probably, that Simonon, you know, if, if he could, you know, time travel and look at 21st century um, neuroscience and, and sort of adapt his, his theory uh, accordingly, I think he would still want to keep something like this quantum character in the sense that um, even at the level of uh, individual neurons, there's still this threshold effect. So um, you have like um, uh, like a neuron can only fire or not fire. Um, it it's, uh, it doesn't have um, sort of degrees uh, in that sense. And so what happens with um, a lot of uh, neurological processes is that you have inputs that get summed or or um, combined in some way, and then if they if they go over a certain threshold, then um, then the, the neuron will fire uh, and then that gets incorporated into a, another level that does a similar type of summation over um, different inputs and uh, and then so you have these multiple layers of, of summation. Um, so I think Simon Don would, would, would argue that there's still this um, quantum character or this threshold uh, nature of, uh, of neurological processes as well and uh, um so yeah i think i think um on the other hand i would say also that there's what he's describing is uh, a psychological phenomenon um so he's describing the the um sort of experience of uh um affectivity rather than specifically the neurological basis on which it, it works um so he's um he's describing 
um, yeah, these describing the experience, and, and so we would have to evaluate it based on evaluate his his model uh, based on how well it um, sort of captures that experience of um, affectivity, rather than specifically um, on the the basis of of the neurological um, foundation that that underlies it. Um, but yeah, so he he talks about this uh, this notion of the subconscious as being um, uh, as having to do with um, um, the inter individual or as as making possible um, inter individual relations. And we'll see in a couple sections uh, later the this notion of the of the trans individual, um, which is uh, his his account of uh, uh, collective individuation. Um, but here he talks about how um, insofar as you can define uh, some sort of uh, group psychology. Um, so if you think, I think he's, he's thinking here of, of something like um, psychology of different nations or something like that. Um, you can only define that at the level of affectivity rather than uh, at the level of either representation or um, or action. Um, so um, a group, something like a, a nation in general, doesn't act uh, as one unit or um, have a, a sort of unity of action, except for maybe some uh, extraordinary circumstances like um, a war or some sort of natural disaster that affects a whole community or something like that where you would have you might have something like a, a temporary unity of action of the whole community um and then likewise representation or or conversely um representation is something to um uh sorry what's the term he uses here uh too broad and too continuous um, so I think the idea here is that um, uh, when you look at explicit representations, there's no um, there's no real difference between I don't know what a, a French person and a, a German person will will um, uh, perceive in an in an uh, environment or um, how they would describe a certain um, uh, scenario or whatever. Um, the the level of of differences between groups is is at the level of uh affectivity so that um one group will prefer a certain type of food or a certain uh kind of mu music um <clears throat> uh whatever different cultural phenomena will have different um valuations in different communities and and so that's the level where we can actually identify differences between groups um yeah so the this cultural um valuation or or um what he's talking about here is at the inter-individual level um uh so yeah the the level of um affectivity is is a level that uh um sort of i don't know leads beyond the boundaries of the individual we can say um so that uh what the affectivity of an individual um, is is not confined to that individual. It's something that um, sort of passes beyond the boundaries of that individual.
and we'll see more on that uh, as we continue with this chapter. Uh, and then there's this bit about um, pathology, uh, which is interesting. Um, it would be interesting to to sort of look at um, to what extent this holds up today. I think, um, but um, the suggestion here is that um, any sort of um, brain lesion, whether it's a, a tumor or uh, an injury or whatever, um, you uh, you find that uh, if it affects representation function, so if, if uh, as a result of this um, damage to the brain, the subject has uh, difficulty with certain types of representation, um, that's something that is relatively uh, reversible. Um, so the subject can, to some extent, to some extent, learn how to. Um, uh, adapt to that deficiency um, and uh, sort of um, work around it. Um, and um, conversely, uh, or, or uh, likewise, in the case of action, so if, if a certain um, injury impairs the action of the subject, they can also find workarounds or other, um, uh, other ways of um, uh, adapting to the, the injury, but in, in the case where um, the injury affects um, uh, the emotional or, or affective layer, um, Simono is suggesting that this is less reversible or something that um, has a, a greater impact on personality. And um, like the uh, the um, the people that, uh, uh, like the, the standard example is um, the Phineas Gage example, where he um, he was a rail, railroad worker that got um, a tamping rod shot through his, his brain and somehow survived. Um, but he uh, um, apparently had like profound personality changes um, so that uh, he uh like people said he wasn't wasn't the same person uh, is, is sort of the the wording that people used um and uh so any any sort of um impact on affectivity will will tend to um have a great impact on the individuality of the person or the individuation of that person uh so that there's um there's some sort of um there's some sort of fundamental relationship between um, the affective uh, layer and individuation of a person. I'm just reading Pretzel's comment here. Um, yeah, so the actual localization of the, um, uh, of, you know, which regions of the brain are involved in, um, in affect, uh, I think is, um, sort of a, a, a secondary consideration for Simone Don, um, but um, it is interesting to, to see this as, um, to try to compare um, what, what Simone Don is saying and based on uh, 1950s um, psychology and, and see to what extent um, that holds up today. Uh, so it, it might be, he might have to um, uh, modify some of his, um, when he suggests that the oldest layers of the brain are, are um, the evolutionarily oldest layers of the brain are the ones that are 
responsible for um, affectivity. That that might be um, something we would have to modify uh, if uh, other areas of the brain are involved in affective regulation. Okay, um, let's go on to the next subsection. Uh, let's see, this is another relatively short one, um, but maybe maybe let's read a page or so and then stop uh, and read the next bit. Um, so if someone else would like to read. Okay, okay. I'll read. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, affectivity in communication and in expression. Ultimately, this theory of individuating role um, played by the affective or emotive functions could serve as a basis of a, for a doctrine of communication and expression. Affective or emotive instances from the basis of intersubjective uh, communication, the reality that is called the communication of consciousness, consciousnesses, uh, could more correctly be called the communication of subconsciousness. Uh, such a communication is established through the intermediary of uh, participation. Neither the community of action nor the, uh, the identity of the contents of consciousnesses suffice to establish intersubjective communication. This explains why intersubjective communication can be established between individuals that are very dissimilar, such as that between a human and an animal, and why very strong sympathies or antipathies can arise between very different beings. However, here beings uh, truly exist as individuals and not as specific realities. A certain animal can be in a relation with, of sympathy with some other animal and not with all the animals of that same species. The profound bond between two draft animals has, uh, has often been noted, a bond so strong that accidental death of one, of, uh, of one animal leads to the death of his companion. To express this relation of lift sympathy, which is <coughs> at once so strong and nevertheless silent, the Greeks used, even for the human couple, the term <coughs> Uh, uh, the community of the yoke. No doubt, uh, such an observation does not allow us to fu uh, fully define what content can be transmitted in inter-individual inter communication, nor does it completely determine eschatological reality in advance. However, certain metaphysical consequences are inevitable. The conservation of personal identity after death does not seem possible in the simple form of continuation of existence. Spinoza's uh, Sentimus ex, uh, exper, uh, Experimurk uh, nos uh, eternus esse, we feel and know by experience that we are eternal, certainly corresponds to a real feeling, but the tenor of this experience is affective or emotive and should not be transposed uh, into a representative definition or into a volunt voluntary uh, decision. We can neither demonstrate eternity or even conceive it, probably speaking, uh, no wager on eternity's existence. Um, both would be unsatisfactory ways of reasoning that would be uh, inadequate to their veritable object. The experience of eternity must be left at the level of what is uh, veritably is the basis of an affective or emotive regime. <clears throat> if there is a certain sort of reality that is eternal, 
It is the individual as a transductive being and not as a subject, uh, subject substance, body substance, uh, consciousness, or active matter. Already during its objective existence, the individual insofar as it experiences is a being in relation. It is possible that something of the individual is eternal as uh, and is somehow re uh, reincorporated into the world with respect to which it was individual. When the individual disappears, it is annihilated only relative to its interiority. But for it to be annihilated uh, objectively, it would have to be supposed that the milieu is also annihilated. The individual continues to exist and even to be active as an absence or with respect to the milieu by dying. By dying, the individual becomes an anti-individual. Uh, it changes sign uh, but is perpetuated in being as an absence. There is still individual. The world is made up uh, not just of uh, actively uh, living individuals, which are real, but also of wholes of individualities. Veritable negative individualities composed of a kernel of affectivity and emotivity existing as symbols. At the moment an individual dies, its uh, activity is incomplete. One could say that it will remain incomplete for as long as individual beings survive that are, um, that are capable of re-actualizing this active uh, absence, the seed of consciousness and of action. The responsibility of maintaining that individuals and being through a perpetual nequia, the evocation rites of the dead, depends on living individuals. The subconsciousness of living beings is fully uh, traversed by uh, this responsibility of maintaining in being the dead individuals that exist as absence, as the symbols with uh, which living beings are reciprocal. Uh, many religious dogmas have been constructed around this fundamental feeling. Religion is the domain of the trans individual. The sacred does not have its full origin in society. The sacred is fueled by the feeling of the being's perpetuity, a vacillating and precarious perpetuity which, uh, with which living beings are burdened. It is fruitless to seek the origin of sacred rites as arising from a fear of the dead. Such a fear is founded on, on the internal feeling of lack that emerges when the living being feels that it abandons this reality of absence within it. This real symbol. The dead seem to become hostile when they are abandoned, not as dead, but as living beings of the past whose perpetuation is entrusted to prosperity. This feeling was deeply ingrained in the Romans, which is why they wanted an heir. The strong belief in substantial identity that is attached to Christian theology does not destroy this fundamental feeling. Individuals will to serve some purpose, to do something real. And there is a certain sense that the idea that the individual cannot merely consist in itself. An absolute acidity, an absolute closure that could yield um, perfect eternity could not be a livable condition for the individual. To subsist would not mean to exist eternally, because this would uh, not be to exist. The study carried out by Franz Camon 
in Luxburg, Virginia, concerning the beliefs of the beyond is not just an analysis of eschatological mythology, but a veritable study of the collective or individual subconscious. Myth takes on a profound meaning here because it is not merely a representation that is useful for action or a facile mode of action. Myth can be accounted for neither through representation nor through action because myth isn't just an uncertain representation or a procedure for acting. The source of myth is affective or emotivity and the myth is a bundle of feelings relative to the becoming of being. These feelings com convey representative elements and active moments, movements, but these realities are secondary and not essential to myth. Plato understood this value of myth and every time the becoming of being was called into question. He made use of a myth as an adequate mode for the discovery of becoming. Right, thanks. Yeah, um, I was going to um, stop you partway through, but I couldn't find a, a place that was like a good stopping point. You know, this is one of his uh, famous giant paragraphs that um, um, that um, continue for like three pages. Um, but um, yeah, so this this bit is a I think a bit easier than the uh, the first two subsections, um, but um, there's also there's a lot here as well um, to to go into. Um, so there's this idea. He starts with this idea of um, um, communication of consciousnesses, uh, um, and um, so the this is a the phenomenon that um, um, is sometimes uh, I guess thought of as as being uh, um, extrasensory or or supernatural or something like that, but where where people have this sort of profound sympathy or or antipathy towards each other, uh, and even also to animals. Um, uh, so anyone who has a, a pet, I'm sure. Um, knows that uh that feeling of, of um sort of a a connection or or um um this this deep bond with with the animal um um and this is something that uh um i mean i i've never had a horse but i know that people who, who own horses and and ride horses know that they they have this um profound connection with a horse um yeah, and sometimes you meet an animal that you don't like for, you know, there's no obvious reason, but you just have uh, um, this antipathy towards a certain dog or a cat or whatever. Um, and um, he points out here that this is something that even other animals have as well. So uh, there's this famous phenomenon or um, uh, account of how um, uh, draft animals um, so um, animals that are used for for plowing uh, in in agriculture, uh, if you if one of them dies, then the other one is affected sometimes to the extent that it will die as well. Um, uh, so that there's um, the just the the sort of joint um, uh, action and and um, 
the the sympathy between these two animals is so strong that it can lead to one of them dying um and uh yeah so the, this he he goes on then from from this notion of sizigi or, or um this this uh affective bond between individuals um he goes on to talk about um what survives after death um and uh yeah 61 has has pointed out that this is you know very powerful um a very powerful passage i think this this whole section um and and he talks about um this this line from spinoza that i really like um where where he says that we feel and, and know by experience that we are eternal um and of course for spinoza this uh eternity doesn't mean um like endless time it has to do with what is outside of time or or non-temporal um but um uh simon Don takes this um takes this experience that spinoza is describing as um uh, uh as a real phenomenon and something to be explained so it's not it's not that um we sort of take it at face value and say that that we um have like a direct experience of of uh the eternity of of the human soul or something like that um but we instead take this experience um of feeling as if we're eternal um we we have to understand what the basis for that experience is um and for for Simon Dome, the basis is precisely that um affective emotive layer um so it's it's something that um, survives us after our death, so that uh, we we persist after death as as um, uh, an absence in someone else's life, uh, or uh, as he puts it here, an an anti individual. So it's it's almost like um, what was a a positive sign uh, gets turned into a negative sign uh, in an equation, um, and. Uh, and so this um, this notion of um, surviving after our death in other people's uh, affective understanding or affective um, uh, attachment to us, I think, is a, a really um, powerful one. And uh, I know anyone who has uh, lost someone in their life that you know that that person. Um, you feel this, uh, like you feel their absence in a very strong way. Um, it, it's, uh, it sort of reshapes your whole, um, affective, uh, system or, or way of understanding the world and, and existing in the world. Um, so it's, uh, I think this is a, a really, um, a really good characterization of that, um, sort of feeling of, of loss and, uh, of the absence of a person. Um, and then he, he takes this also to be an explanation for this um, desire to have a, an heir um, that, that is so characteristic of uh, Roman society, but is also, you know, even today is something that people want to have a family and, and sort of have something that, that lives on after their death. Um, and he, he points to... Um, the way that uh, even so, even though Christian theology 
has this doctrine of the uh, survival of the soul um, as a sort of substantial identity that that lives on after death. Uh, even despite that doctrine, uh, people who live in, in Christian societies still have this desire for things that live on in the world of the living. Um, so they want to, um, I don't know, build a monument or write a great book that will live on or, or somehow affect other people's lives in such a way that you, you have, um, uh, that you live on after your death, um, in those people's lives. And, uh, he, he also, I think makes an interesting point. Um, sorry, I'm going a little bit out of order here, but going back up the page, he, he makes the point that, um, trying to, uh, trying to re explain religion as being the results of uh, a fear of the dead is uh, uh, sort of getting things backwards because it, it doesn't explain why people should fear the dead at all in the first place. Um, and uh, for Simon Don, this fear of the dead arises through um, this uh, uh, feeling of... Um, uh, this feeling of um, abandoning the dead, right? So because the dead live on in us, um, uh, insofar as we sort of keep them alive, there's always this um, possibility that we are not keeping them alive or, or not to the extent that maybe they would have wanted. Um, so then there's, there's this feeling of abandoning um, the dead and not allowing them to live on uh, uh, in, in the a full sense of that term. Um, and it's because of that, um, it's only because of that abandonment that we fear the dead and fear their, their uh, judgment of us. Uh, so, so yeah, this, this explanation of religion from fear of the dead, which, which I think was like a, um, one of the uh, sort of uh, widespread um, theories of the origin of religion in uh, like 19th century anthropology, um, it sort of gets things backwards because it, it takes as, um, as the cause uh, what is really the effect. Uh, and then, yeah, so he, he argues that um, it's only because, uh, because as individuals we, we have this um, uh, connection with others that we, we aren't sort of self-subsisting uh, independent entities. It's only because of that that we have anything like um, uh, a life after death. Um, so it's because we, uh, we um, have this uh, affective communication with others that, um, that we live on in other people's affectivity after our death. And so if, if the individual were something like um, a complete uh, self-contained uh, substance, then uh, that 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 individual would would just disappear after death. Uh, there would be nothing left. Uh, and then there's the last bit here where he talks about um, Plato, um, and uh, so Plato has these um, sort of strange passages where he says, let's, let's introduce a myth or let's create a new myth or something like that, which is a, sort of a, a strange thing to say. Um, um, but he, uh, he introduces these myths uh, in, in, uh, in the Republic, uh, in um, the Phaedo, um, 
I forget which other ones, but there's a few different texts where he, uh, uh, in the symposium, of course, um, 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 yeah, so he, he introduces these myths that um, there's, there's something um, uh, like, you know, Plato, of course, has this um, suspicion of, of uh, poetry and, and in the Republic, um, he, he bans the poets from, from his ideal city. Um, but he, at the same time, he recognizes the power um, of, of the poetic and of, of myth and storytelling. Uh, and uh, so Simondo argues here that he that Plato uses myth or or suggests here that um, that Plato uses myth as a way to express um, becoming uh, or specifically the becoming of being. So um, uh, and we see this especially in the the Timaeus, which is the whole thing is one giant myth um, um, of creation uh, and and. At the outset of the of the dialogue, um, the discussants um, basically agree that uh, a myth or a story is is the best you can do for uh, talking about the realm of becoming. Uh, whereas in the in the realm of being, you can have uh, certain knowledge. Uh, when you're talking about um, becoming, all, the best you can have is a, a probable story, um, and so. Um, myth or story is is what um corresponds to becoming um so the next section is a bit longer um and uh, as i suggested at the outset today i i wouldn't mind ending a bit early so maybe um we can take any like final questions or comments here and then uh pick up section uh, subsection four um for uh for next time that's not, that sounds good to me I'll definitely make it for next time, given the the content so far. This is almost spellbinding, you know. I couldn't I couldn't really miss it. I'd feel terrible. Yeah, this is one of the, uh, um, I think one of the most interesting parts of this book, uh, and um, it's a bit strange that when he published the book, the like the the original publication of the book was just the first two parts, and so this part wasn't published until. Um, the year of his death. I'm not sure if it actually was published uh, before or after his death, but uh, it, it was, you know, several decades later. Um, so this part for, for you know, 25, 30 years just sort of sat in his desk or whatever uh, with no one, um, no one really knowing about it except for, I guess, his committee. Um, so... Yeah, it was kind of surprising that um, some of the most, uh, some of the strongest passages of this book, he just decided not to publish them at that time. Can I ask you a question um, about uh, the Simundan's later years? Uh, do you know anything uh, around that topic? Uh, I, I found it very hard to to find even like just basic historical information about his his later life, and I I don't know why I have been running into a, a brick wall. Yeah, there's not a lot available about his biography, um, which is kind of surprising. Uh, like he, um, you know, of course, in the 20th century figures, we expect a lot of information to be uh, available. Um, and uh, I know his his daughter is uh, involved in the publication of his his works. Um, um, 
So like you would think she would have a lot of information about his life. Um, but uh, no, I don't, I don't really know a lot about um, his, his later biography. I'm not like he did teach at, uh, I forget where at, at university anyway, but he, he was teaching um, for a while at least, but I'm not sure how long he kept doing that. It's, it seems almost like a, there's a lack of finality, just like that minor historical detail, perhaps, but it just, it's, it's always driven me a little crazy that I can't find more information about him in this time period of his life. Yeah, maybe one of us will have to um, write the definitive biography, uh, dig through whatever archival documents are available and so on. Right, or maybe do interviews. Yeah, like a lot of these people are still alive, like his daughter and, and other people that, that were involved in his life um, are still alive. This wasn't sort of ancient history. Um, he died in 1989, if I remember correctly. So um, yeah, so they're, they're, this information is out there somewhere or in someone's head. Uh, it's just not like in a, an accessible place or um, gathered together. Um, okay, so if there if there's any other comments, uh, maybe, or if there are no other comments, then we can uh, end here. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's end here. Um, and uh, we'll pick up from subsection four next time. And uh, yeah, we, there's more um, um, on life after death and, uh, or the relationship between life and death and uh, the trans individual, um, which is one of his key concepts that uh, we, we've seen like little hints of before, but now we're getting into more of the uh, actual development of this concept. So stay tuned. Okay, bye.